0: Dating is messy. It is so, it's like an emotionally complicated endeavor. It's not, it's like, it is an emotionally complicated endeavor. <sighs>
1: back to Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie DelBout. Coming to you from Las Vegas in my hotel room right now, I've been here doing a bunch of interviews at a music festival, which you'll hear eventually. But today's episode I recorded a little while ago. I guess it, I guess it was almost a month ago now because it's already June, but I recorded this in early May with my friend Clara. And you're going to hear all about her, but she has this beautiful house upstate and she had me up for the weekend and we just we talk about this but it was basically one long podcast the entire time I was there we didn't do anything other than talk with each other and get to know each other and we recorded about two hours of that I think a little bit longer than two hours of that but I'm going to split this episode I never do this but for some reason this one just felt like it was so full of content and not necessarily all information, so much wisdom, but it was just robust. And I thought it would be, I would like to hear it in two sittings. We talk about not just dating and relationships, although we do touch on that. We talk about her career. She is someone who, you know, since she graduated from John Hopkins, worked in the corporate sphere for a long time. And then became a life coach and health coach and eventually started talking about dating. She talks about all of this in the episode, but after she left her corporate job, she got those certifications and she wasn't exactly sure what she's going to do. But I define her more of anything as a writer. She's one of the most nurturing, cozy people in the world and is so articulate as a speaker and as a coach, but she's a fantastic writer. And the reason that she ended up talking about dating is because she wrote two very personal, essays, pieces about dating that came out on New York Magazine's The Cut. One is called Dating Without Texting is Actually the Best, and the other one is called I Had My First Date at 28. We talk about both of those essays a bit in this episode, but definitely read them because she's such a great writer. She's written for many, many other places. We talk about so much in this episode. Like I said, I'm splitting it into two, but we get into meeting In real life versus online, going up to people in real life, being intrigued by people, not going to bars, and wanting to date, and how to handle that. Obviously, we talk about how she became a relationship coach, which is something that she never set out to do. We talk about chivalry in the Me Too era. We talk about learning to actually like yourself and the importance of that, and how... Yeah, it's a complicated thing we get into. We talk about our parents and their impact on our relationships. We talk about loneliness and heartbreak. We talk about how nothing is predictable. A lot about nostalgia, resting your nervous system. A lot of helpful tools for starting dating and also learning how to be single. And we talk about being in relationships. So I think whether you are in a relationship, not in a relationship, want to be in a relationship, want to be single, this episode hits a lot of notes and There's a lot of insight and wisdom from Clara. She's just one of those nurturing people I like being around. I'm so happy that she had me at her place upstate. This is the beginning of many collaborations between her and I. We're actually doing an event together at the Hoxton Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in the middle of July. So I'll send you guys information on that. If you guys have been liking the show, great. Thank you. We are sending out the show notes. You can get all the links and info to everything we mentioned in the episodes in a beautiful email that comes to your inbox. So if you like that, great. If you don't want anything else in your inbox, totally get it. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for sticking with me and being around. At the end of this episode, I have a new sponsor that I'm loving. (laughs) They're these nuts, you guys, that I cannot stop eating. I'm in Las Vegas, like I said, and I brought some on the plane, but I don't have any left and I really wish I did. And I'm actually doing a giveaway for a bag of them, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I'm having the founder of this company that makes these South American ultra nutritious nuts on the podcast because I love them so much. So that interview is at the end of this, but they are high in protein and they just taste so good. They have antioxidants, they're they're just, they're really great. You're gonna hear about this later, but. If you want to get 15% off your order, the code is let it out, as it usually is. And thank you so much to them and to our other sponsor, Ned, which I'm going to tell you about right now. And then we'll get to this episode. I love Ned you guys. CBD is something that's been very useful for me. It helps with my stress and anxiety and if you haven't tried CBD, Ned is the place to try it. You can get 15% off your order by using the code let it out. All of Ned's products are organic and they're made from natural ingredients, small batch, slow crafted. I've talked to the founders on my podcast and they told me that the person that grows the plants actually plays music for them and says positive affirmations to them. It's so sweet. His name is Farmer Kurt. They just seem like this lovely company and lovely people. And I think honestly, that makes the product better. So if you want to try out CBD, it's non psychoactive, derived from the hemp plant, but it's something that has been said to help with sleep, treat insomnia, it's anti inflammatory, it's a natural pain reliever. They have really great products. It's been said to help treat depression and you know, it's something that it's just maybe worth a try. If you haven't tried CBD before, you know, these are areas that it's helped. And I love their, they make these chapsticks that are my favorite chapsticks in the world. But they're honestly, their CBD oil that I put under my tongue. It's like, you know, it just helps me when I'm out in the world. I feel a little bit more in my body and it helps me sleep. And I would really love it if you guys checked it out. Supporting the sponsors is a way to help support this podcast. And it really means a lot. So their website is www, why did I say that? It's just helloned.letitout. And to get your free shipping and 15% off and show your support for the show, let it out, use the code, let it out. Thank you so much. The link is in the show notes. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. This, this is going to be so great. You're you're so wonderful. You have great taste. You're so nurturing. You're a wonderful host. I was mm-hmm. thinking about this before we started recording. We've been basically podcasting for three days straight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've been talking nonstop, honestly, since I've gotten here. I've spent the weekend at Clara's Upstate. We're in Rhinebeck. And since she picked me up from the train, we have not so much as watched a movie. We thought about it. We did. Yeah. We've talked about Yeah. No. We've barely been with other human beings. Yes. Except my mother. (laughs) Which was lovely. Which is great. Which is great. (laughs) Which is like having a third podcast guest. But we've been essentially having a long, very long form conversation. And we have so much more to cover. So now we're finally recording. We are. Yes. But there's a list. I feel like people should know there's an actual list. Yeah.
0: We've been keeping
1: tabs. Yeah. On the different conversation tabs we have open. Yeah. But- I'm pretty good at keeping the thread going and making sure that's that's my job, making sure we come back to the things. So every time we were bringing up a new topic, I was like, oh, this will be good for the podcast, or I want people to hear this. So I have a lot of notes that I've been taking. But first of all, you're really nurturing. You're a great host. Have you always been nurturing? What were you like as a kid? You're an oldest child.
0: I am. It's interesting because that's something that someone, a couple of people have told me that in the last Mm -hmm. few weeks. And I think part of it is where I'm at right now because I have this home upstate and I tend to host people from the city. And I'm always thinking about how can I create an environment that feels like just a very relaxing space and experience. And I also love to cook and I love to, I myself love to feel cozy and snuggled and held and all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I thought a lot about that when it came to my bedding and the towels and flowers and candles and scents and uh, warm things and So in terms of, yeah, it's funny. Someone said that to me. Two people told me that in the last few weeks. And then you said it specifically that word nurturing. They've said you're so nurturing. And I think it is something that I've had in me for a long time. And it's come out in different ways. But I think now it's being expressed in the form of a home, which feels Mm -hmm. much more literal. I think I was that way as a manager and that way as a boss and that way as a friend. So yeah, no, it, it it feels like a quality that I'm understanding more now as other people are experiencing it.
1: Let's get into some of the managing and experience that you've had and also the cooking and talk mm-hmm. about your career path which is really interesting. What did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? Gosh, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that
0: question and so there're two answers to it though. For a while, I thought I wanted to be a dancer and on Broadway. I don't think I ever really, in my mind, thought I would do that. And so even though I was taking all the classes and doing all the things, I don't think I ever really approached it in a way that I took it that seriously. I think part of that was because both of my parents were artists. And so my reaction to that, they were supportive of anything that I wanted to do. But that actually (laughs) sent me in the other direction of, of being... Wanting to work more in, in business and and build companies, and I think this is mildly embarrassing, but the thing that comes to mind is I very much remember those early days of Sex in the City and watching Samantha Jones, and I remember her office so vividly, and that felt very right to me, mm-hmm. of having a space of working independently. I think we think of Samantha Jones and it conjures up a lot of sexual identity stuff. So uh, it it definitely didn't relate at that point to that. But in terms of what I wanted to do, I actually never really had one specific set thing that I wanted to do. It it was more so my parents both being in the arts and they were very fortunate in certain ways. And in other ways, I I got an upfront seat to the hardships of that creative career path. So, I think what I did in the early days, especially, was very much a reaction to that upbringing. So, if to your point of what, did, or to your question rather, of what did you want to do growing up, I didn't think of it as a literal thing. I think I went after things that were more so a reaction to what is different, what is more secure. I mean, haha, nothing's secure.
1: Right. But so then you worked in corporate jobs first, you went to school. What did you study again?
0: I actually went to, my undergrad was in, I did it in philosophy and women and gender studies, which is really interesting because I've had people pursue me now because of that work. At the time I did it because I thought I wanted to go to law school. I didn't want to go to law school. It just felt very predictable and contained. And my dad was also very supportive of me. And I thought, oh, someone's going to send me a law. Sure. Great. I'll go. Someone wants to send me to law school. And I, 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 I didn't even take the LSAT. So my undergrad was in philosophy with a focus in women and gender studies.
1: At Cornell, right? Uh, Johns Hopkins. That's right.
0: Yeah. And then I just sort of, my last semester, I was like, I'll apply to jobs after I graduate. I really want to enjoy this period in my life, which is funny looking back because I'm such a planner. But I gave myself permission to do that. And then I ended up in a job, I worked in, essentially in marketing. I mean, you could Couch my first eleven years of my career, everything fell under the umbrella of marketing. But yeah, the first job I worked at a healthcare consulting firm in DC, marketing consulting memberships. I say the words now, and it sounds so foreign, but actually, that first job—you can always look back and see all the steps and Mm -hmm. how they add together. And that first job was so—it taught me so much.
1: Yeah, in terms of both how, gosh, it made me so entrepreneurial. Isn't it interesting how, we've been talking about that a lot this weekend, about how formative mm. jobs can be as training on how to be in person and how to conduct yourself and yes skills you can use that you never would have thought you'd be able to use.
0: Yes, and how they all weave together. I mean, when I was in that job, I hated it. Yeah. Every day I- you know, had my head in my hands at my desk thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? Now I look back and I'm like, that was the best thing ever, you know, but yes, it all fits together. And I even think to our conversation, it's those communication, social skills that are actually what's so much more valuable.
1: Yeah. So then after that, you worked, you were in an early stage startup for a long time in marketing
0: Yeah, I can. Yeah, so I'll pull back here. So the easiest way to... I was in D.C. I graduated in 2007. I lived in D.C. from 2007 to 2011, and I worked for two different companies there, both in the capacity of marketing. The first one was much more direct sales, and then the second one was... which is... was more sales than marketing, but... uh, Direct sales, I'll just say. And then the second one was more focused on uh, PR, communications, and event planning, actually. I went through a period where I, I think sometimes when you are in a job where you so don't feel like yourself, you have this, I had a visceral reaction where I felt I just needed to be in something that felt so me. And at the time, I thought that was event planning because it coincided with me also starting a blog around 2011 which was very focused on food and entertaining. It was called Channeling Contessa. And so I started- She
1: got to be in a magazine with
0: (laughs) Ina Garten. I have met (laughs) Ina Garten. She's really lovely. (laughs) So cool. That was very special. Yeah. No, that was a very, very special day and experience. And it's so funny to think back on- watching her television show growing up and then be standing in her home. And I, I totally, I don't really fangirl out when it comes to celebrities. I also don't recognize, you know, someone will see someone in New York and I, I don't even know who that is, mm-hmm. but I remember using her bathroom and being like, I'm in her bathroom. So cool. <laughs> anyway, so I had those two jobs, both based in marketing. Uh, the blog started in 2011 and I moved back to New York in 2011 and from 2011 to 2014, it was actually on my own primarily, and it was a combination of running the blog. And then also, I had leveraged the blog. Instead of leveraging the audience to do sponsored content or branded content, I leveraged it to consult in social and digital media marketing. And I worked with a wide variety of companies, from general mills to very small work out of someone's apartment startups. And then... I wrapped that up in mid-2014. I wrapped up the blog to a bigger life evolution. And I actually worked, I was the social media director at Self Magazine. So I was at Conde Nast for a period. And that was that was a really interesting. The brand had just, they just rebranded and they brought me in actually to support the rebrand from a digital side. And I'd never worked in publishing before. So that was very unusual. Most people had Climb the ranks. But that was a really helpful experience in terms of getting exposed to that industry and, of course, making a lot of editorial connections. And then I left there in the fall, late fall of 2015, and I went back to consulting for a period. And I thought I had a great client roster. I loved the flexibility, I had started some new creative projects. And then a friend of mine that I went to college with had started a company. It was a tech startup. It was formerly called SkyFit. It's now called Active. It was the first audio fitness app. So I joined. I was a th- third employee. And we took it. You know, I was there from we were in a tiny office, smaller than the space we're in now in WeWork, to the offices are now in One World Trade. And there's a 150-plus employees. Wow. And, yeah, it was a very exciting, humbling. It it was my MBA in many yeah. ways, a real life and so that was really exciting, but uh yeah, I
1: wrapped that up a little over a year ago. And and then somewhere in there you became a life coach who now specializes in relationships and dating. Mm-hmm. How did how did
0: that happen? So it was something bubbling for a long time. Yeah, I, I often say now, I think I was a coach trapped in a marketer's resume for 10 plus years. <laughs> Although there's so many parallels between, I've recently realized the parallels between these two worlds, industries, all that stuff. But the, the short story is I had a coach that I was working with. I've worked with a lot of different therapists, healers, different modalities. And I had a coach that I was working with. I started in the fall of 2017, and she said to me, she planted the seed in a pretty strong way. You're meant to do this work. You're meant to do something else. And I was like, absolutely not. I mean, I I, I bring it back to actually my upbringing of feeling like I, I need something concrete, structured, predictable. I mean, again, nothing's predictable, you know. So I was really resistant at first, but she persuaded me to start my training in the winter of 2018. And I thought, okay, I'm going to run my full-time job and do the training at the same time. And then I ended up adding on another training. So I did a combo life coach training, uh, two two separate programs of one of life coaching, one for health coaching. And uh, I was planning on working full-time and doing both of them. And then in a very... Quintessential trip, a yoga retreat to Bali. (laughs) And I feel like you can't go to Bali and not come back and quit your job. I went there for two weeks in February of 2018. I came back and I quit my job. (laughs) And then I spent, you know, then I went full into training. And it was half training, half a sabbatical that was a long time coming, a lot of different, a year that was focused on teaching and healing myself in more ways than we could probably, you know, we could spend the next six hours building this house. Yes. Yes. A
1: real, there, the transition was part of so much more. You wrote this article for the cut about how you had your very first date at 28. Mm -hmm. That's how I found you. Mm. How, how did that come to be? Can you talk about that, that article and, and that experience for you?
0: Yeah. So I, I was a real late bloomer. I didn't have any boyfriends in high school. I went to prom senior year, but I went with a friend. I remember someone asking me to junior prom. I have such a visceral memory of walking into the school and some boy coming up to me and was like, Clara, would you like to go to the prom? And I was like, nope. And
1: then I just turned. Oh my gosh. Did you like feel best sad after?
0: I don't, I mean, yes, it was such an ego thing of he, if I was going to go to the prom, it had to be with someone that was- Popular enough. And I mean, you're such a, you know, you're, I was 16. Yeah. Uh, you're just a walking hormone, but you know, just I was super awkward. And I had gone to school with the same 90 kids since I was five years old, grew up in a small town. So who you were when you were five years old was very much, at least for my experience, who you were when you graduated. And so, yeah, yeah
1: I know. <laughs> I know, it brings you right back.
0: Yeah. Somebody
1: I know. I Have you like, been watching that show Pen 15? I heard about that. Yeah, so I've I th- watching it either, but I, I feel like from what I've heard, it's very visceral. Like yes. this conversation we've Brings been you right back. Yeah. I know. I know. So which like I still feel like I'm a teenager mm. now, at
0: oh, 20. now. Oh 28. Oh yes. <laughs> I still feel it at 33 at moments of feeling now that I'm back living in my hometown and I see somebody from school, you know, in line at the post office. I'm like, I don't know you. I'm ignoring you. I, yeah. I bizarre. know. We, yeah. So anyway, at yeah, late loomer, I went to college. I, I, you know, you got drunk and you hooked up. And honestly, I can count on less than two hands the number of times I did that because I would wake up the next day and feel, just a wave of depression that was so, wasn't worth the getting drunk and hooking up with whoever. And it never, uh, you know, never amounted to anything more than that for a variety of reasons. And so, um, yeah, so I, I didn't really date anyone. And then in the spring semester of my senior year, I met a guy and I, I, You know, I had sort of, I had at that point evolved and become a lot more confident and bold with myself, but at the same time, it was the timing of it all. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, uh, yeah, getting together and then we dated for six and a half, seven years, but we did meet (laughs) drunk at a bar near campus. So when I say that I had my first date at 28, it was never that, hi, how are you, total stranger. Here we are sitting down in this scenario where, you know in person or online there you're sitting down for a script exactly exactly and there's a a intention and a a purpose and again whether it's over a drink or coffee or a meal or anything of that nature you're connected through friends I had never done that and I think in this you know I'm 33 now I think of this generation that's happening less and less Mm -hmm. and we can get into to why that is but so I felt when this relationship ended. You mean
1: dating in a typical way is happening less and less?
0: Well, I think what actually constitutes the date, the word in and of itself has evolved. It's yeah. it's tenuous. It's, it's muddy. But I think what dating is, what exclusivity is, mm. what labels, all that jazz, which to me is a product of our lack of communication skills, our lack of human-to-human connection, but at that time, yes. So I was twenty eight, two years away from 30, the time I had, you know, planned in my calendar. I mean, literally, you think you can plan these things if I'd be married and have children running mm-hmm. around. And yeah, now I was single in New York, the quote unquote worst city in the world to date, and had never truly been on a date. And that's so that's what prompted that article.
1: Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that experience and that that breakup and that first dating experience after that and kind of what you outlined in that article because obviously people who have been listening for a while understand how that when that was put into my field definitely Mm. (laughs) resonated I I know why like 12 people sent it to me (laughs) and I'm so glad they did because now I have this friendship with you and here Mm. you are on the podcast but yeah tell tell us about that and and I guess we can get into this now of you know what helped you get over that breakup and and get into dating? Mm,
0: yeah. So I'll start. The breakup itself was was a very significant relationship. It was my first in a lot of ways for both of us, and it's such. There's such formative years. Mm-hmm. Uh, my heart goes out to anybody in a good. You know, my heart goes out for excitement and anything in your twenties. Your twenties are rough. In the way that you need to be knocked around. You you just do. And so we went through a lot together. We were best friends. We had so many amazing experiences. And we held on for so long because… There's a
1: history there.
0: Yeah. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And we really reached a breaking point of why isn't this working? And it took a long time for us to be… To say the words of, oh… Oh, it's because it's not right, which is when, you know, I remember this happening and I thought, God, it would be so much easier if somebody had cheated.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: I don't know if that's true or not, you know, in hindsight and at now having been. I know. It <laughs> feels insensitive to, on, to you know, say. Yeah. It feels insensitive, but he was, we were each other's and it was heartbreaking, you know, and we had. Planned, we'd lived together for years. I was on his health insurance. We'd shared holidays together. We were very intertwined. I had lost my grandmother and my father during the time that we were together. So, again, just very 21 to 28, extremely formative years. And it wasn't right. And so we ended at the beginning of 2014. And, you know, how did I get over it? How did I get into dating? I mean, for those first few months, it's interesting. A lot of the work that I do right now, I meet so many women that are dating from a place of obligation. And I was so raw. I was so dismantled that that didn't, the pressure to go out there didn't even cross my radar because I knew how much I needed to just care for myself. And so I was very kind to myself in that regard right from the get-go because I was probably a, form of self-preservation. It was definitely self-preservation because the idea of, well, how am I going to now meet my next someone after (laughs) I've been with this person who's basically my other, you know, I mean, we were essentially married in some form or fashion. And so I, I really, and this is what I do now, there's so much power in just giving yourself the permission and the space and the grace to not feel that pressure. And it really has to be it's as I think, of a sponge absorbing a bunch of liquid. It has to be so in your bones, just in your system. But what that allowed me to do was then a few months later in April, and I did a lot during that period in terms of I moved. I created a really nice home for myself. I went to Mexico with friends. It was a group of girls. And I just remember walking the beach, listening to the same soundtrack. And I mean, just what to, soundtrack? You know, I'll dig it up. Um, it was one. It was a. It was actually. Oh my gosh! Now I remember it. Jennifer De Curtins, who is a blogger, she runs the blog Peanut Butter Runner. She's a dear sort of internet friend of mine. She's a yogi. She. I had one of her yoga class mm. playlists, and that's what I was listening to. Anyway, so there was a lot of healing that went into that, and then it started to perk up for me. That feeling of curiosity.
1: How long do you think that?
0: How many months was that? And it's different for everyone, but. <laughs> oh, totally. Because because also I will say that it came in, I mean, that first wave of curiosity, now I have much more sort of my radar in terms of what, what my system was craving, what it was ready for. I also ended up, so I would say it was technically, let's see, it was only three months. But I say that with, well, one, the breakup has taken years to heal from in a variety of different capacities. So it wasn't like, I'm over it, you know, I've moved on the lessons have come in different forms, but it was three months after where I got curious about online dating. So I did that for the first time and it was very, it was 2014. So it was very popular, but there was still, there was a lot of conversation around how terrible it is. So knowing that going in, I was very just aware of anything I had the self-awareness to know that anything that happened was not a reflection of me, which I think connected to the state of which I was in. I gave, again, I come back to, I was in such a place of self-compassion and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And so I did online date. I I did it for a period, you know, met a few people. It was bizarre. I had some hilarious experiences and it just, I did it for a few weeks and then it wasn't right. And then I ended up reconnecting with someone that I had worked with previously. And we dated for a period and that was long distance. And that I can say was very much, it was a rebound in many regards. And I bring it up because it was less, oh, I'm ready to date and I'm meeting new people. I can now look back. It's like the job thing. Mm -hmm. I can now look back and see all these people as markers and teachers and moments in my healing of this is what I needed but then here's the
1: lesson i needed to be yeah. served. Yeah, it's interesting. I can kind of look at my patterning, you know, before i met this last relationship, and tiny relationships that i had and how they taught me how to how to date or how to talk to yes. someone or how to how this is going to happen. And it's very interesting. I feel like we kind of glossed over how you went from, you know, going into your coach's training, your health coaching mm. training to eventually, you know, becoming this dating expert which you never set out to be, and you eventually developed an approach to dating that feels good to you now, and you help women with everything from, you know, what to text back to how to just feel better about dating. So let's start. I have a lot of questions around that, but how did you decide I'm going to be a dating coach? So there's two parts to the story. The first is
0: I've been curious about partnership And what that means and what that looks like from a very young age, because my parents divorced when I was five years old, but they also, and I say this not to disparage them, but simply to paint a picture. My mom was married once before my dad and then had relationships after they divorced, but nothing that was officially marriage. And my dad was married four times across his lifetime, and it really gave me a front row seat to what that delivered, but also the hardships that came with it and what they were both seeking and then combine that with i was you know as a child of the 90s a lot of my friends parents were divorced and i remember thinking about and a lot of them were you know some of them were together too i was very curious about the different you know the marriages that that did work the different step parent situations the different living situations so partnership was something I was curious about for a very long time. And I always kind of had my antenna up because it hadn't worked out for my parents. And so I felt like, gosh, I'm not set up. I don't have a model here (laughs) with which to work with. And so that fear was definitely on my mind. And then when I came out of, you know, I thought, oh, I met this person and I'm done. done. Right. Right, exactly, which is, that's a whole other thing. Why I stayed in it for so long, which was good in many ways, but I definitely was like, I will keep working on this because you make something work.
1: Do you think that's a common thing for us products of
0: divorce? That's a great question. I've seen so many different permutations. I have friends who, growing up, who went through divorce, married early, and have amazing relationships. I have people who didn't come from
1: divorce, I I don't know. I don't yeah. know. We've just been talking a lot about how our parent our individual parents' divorces and relationships have impacted our totally. individual, you know, shit in relationships <laughs> yes. and how that's definitely something to process even though I'm nearly 30, I am just now this week realizing how my parents' relationship affects me. And I know it was something you had to process and unpack. So that's a whole other tangent. But I just think it's it's so interesting that, that it's not surprising that that's a cornerstone of your work. And I think it's something that, you know, for everyone listening, the looking at your parents' relationships and your models for relationships is something to be aware of and cognizant of of how you date and what you're looking for it's just i mean this is not a this is not a groundbreaking thought but um anyway
0: no it's so true and i yeah i mean in one way it's not because there are so many i mean divorce is the it's the rates have gone down but it's exceptionally common so of course i mean any type of patterning modeling that's what we're now all grappling with and it comes out in the form of relationships romantic, not platonic, anything. So, but yeah, the, both of my parents' experience with it. And I was fortunate that we had candid conversations about that. And so um, it was definitely top of mind for me. And I definitely thought I've met this person, check, check, check. Even though I loved them dearly, I really wanted that to work for that reason, because one of the big things that was a fear of mine coming out of it On top of, you know, not knowing how to date wasn't just, I don't know how to ask someone out. It was this larger thing of what what is intimacy, what is partnership, what is connection to me. And so I never set out to be a dating coach, but I did. It was very much a personal journey Mm -hmm. when I ended that relationship around 28 to, in the same way that I was curious about my parents' experience and their relationships across their lifetime or their lives. I was very, very curious about modern partnership, I'll call it, because everyone was so miserable in dating. And why? Why was that? They were miserable in dating, and there were all of these wonderful, fabulous women that were single. Why? Why? What? So it was more anthropological in that sense. I was very curious. And I feel like I could go on forever about this, but essentially I... Over the course of, I used the apps for a period, and I don't, you know, people, they always want to bucket you. I don't vilify the apps at all. I've dated in person. I've used the apps. I've had success in both areas. But I did start to meet people in person because I was so, everyone said, you can't, you can't. Nobody meets people in person anymore. And it's less about the dating, meeting people in person, and more so I'm just a person that if someone says something like that, again, I become curious. Why? Why is that? Because I'm, surrounded by people when i'm on the subway or i'm in a restaurant or something of that nature where i see someone that i'm tr- intrigued by and i spent a good year chewing on the fact that it was the fear that was you know it wasn't you can go up to any it wasn't my inability to go up to them everything it's it's about the fear what am i going to say or how they're going to react and even if they don't have a wedding ring on do I don't even know if they're coupled or not, and how am I going to handle being rejected? i oh yeah, just talking about it <laughs> like I could never do that. That's how I genuinely feel. Well, so I mean, this is it's so interesting because I started doing it, and then that's when friends, people, I mean, people would start introducing me and say, "Oh, Claire is a dating expert," and I wanted to be like. I just got over the fear of asking someone what they were reading at a coffee shop. I mean, like I say, like kind of like whispery yeah. because it didn't seem, and I, I'm not, I'm not downplaying it because now, I mean, now I'm so honored and to, to work with women in that capacity, but it was truly a, a personal journey and I was planning on being a health coach. I got trained in those modalities and those areas. And it was only when I started writing about dating and there's actually content, there are personal essays out there about my health related content too, but the timing of working with, you know, publishers and media outlets and all the uh, dating content dropped first. And that is what I, at the time when it dropped on my website, I always say it was like a billboard saying health coaching. And then over here, there was like a small sign that was like, if you want to talk about dating, you know, because I didn't, I kind of didn't, uh, you know, I didn't want to, I don't know. There was a whole, there was a lot, you know, ego wise there. Like I went, who's a dating coach? You know, most dating coaches are looking at your online profile and telling you what to text Mm -hmm. back. And I don't, I don't do that at all. That's not what my work is grounded in, but yeah, it really, I mean, it's people always say it's the thing that you do without even thinking or it comes Mm -hmm. naturally to you. And yes, I had worked at it, but dating is something that um, I have, I have a lot of agency over that
1: in my life. It's very projector human design, which I know you are, mm. where I know Jenna Zoe talked about this, of like finding your, when she did my podcast, finding your purpose is the thing that you go down rabbit holes for, you're interested in, and then yes. it you know, might become your, your job in some way. So you mentioned meeting people in person. What's your greatest piece of advice for meeting someone in person? Walk us through it. You've had a couple examples of it.
0: Yeah, I feel it's really important when I talk about this to clarify because a lot of times people will say to me, Well, I don't want to go to bars. Mm-hmm. And I'll great, me neither. I the the prime of when I was doing this, I was working 70, 80 hours a week. I have the bedtime of a toddler. I go to bed at 9:30 at night. <laughs> I get up at 5:30. I don't really drink that much. I mean, friends joke that I am a grandma. So no, I did not have some raging social life. I was very curious about my surroundings. I would see people on the subway and in coffee shops and in restaurants and think, oh, I'm intri- I'm intrigued by them and I want an entryway. I'm, and we can read people. Um, I was actually just reading about this in um, the book that's sitting right there. The body keeps the score um, around body language and, tone of voice and all of these social cues that give us so much more information about a person than an online profile. And so when you feel drawn to something or to someone, it's very, it's charged. Mm. And so I was, these situations kept cropping up. And so, you know, when I was getting my coffee in the morning or I was picking up lunch or I was out to dinner with friends and some guy would walk in and I think, oh, I'm so intrigued by him. So, then I started to that happened that went on for about a year. There was a period where I thought of because I realized it was just the fear, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, I'll have little cards printed, and then the, I mean, that's just don't hang. <laughs>
1: You would have cards printed that I you would leave a, a friend of,
0: No A friend of mine and I were like, well, maybe we should have a little card. It looks fake. Like we've torn off a p- piece of paper with our name, but we write them in advance and we. I 100% want to do that. You think it's a bad idea? Well, <laughs> well, I feel like in the New York subway, people are like, don't give your name to people. But it's, I have met people on the subway and it does feel like you're more on display when everybody around you is hearing this sort of like, oh, let me get your number totally. conversation. Yeah. yeah. So or even it's in not, a coffee shop. It's or, not, right. You You feel like you're on display. So. So that was the genesis of it. And then I very vividly remember the first time, because I would have a lot, I had a lot of sort of false starts where I would make eyes with someone and then I would, I did it on the subway once I made eyes at someone and then looked back to see if they had noticed and they were looking at me and I was like, oh my God, it works. (laughs) You know, and I didn't ask, I didn't say anything. So I had a lot of those occurrences where I would chicken out. And then I was in a cafe and this guy at the other end of the table was reading something. And I oh my God, I was so nervous. I was sweating. But I just it the outcome almost didn't even matter. It was like just Do it for the sake of doing it. You do not have a flashing sign over your head that says, I have a crush on you. Would you like to walk down the aisle with me? I mean, I don't really know this person, but I'm intrigued by them. And that's fun and that's exciting. Mm -hmm. So I finally worked up the courage. He was getting his bill and I just blurted out, what are you reading? And then we ended up dating for five months. So, But that one was, it was like ripping a Band-Aid off Mm -hmm. of just, and then I became much more confident. is isn't even the right word. Pretty ballsy, about how I would see someone and I just didn't really care Um, whether I went up and started a conversation with them or I've done things where I've had a waiter pass a note or something like that, that to me feels kind of romantic and fun, especially in New York. But it was, an entire world opened up to me and completely changed how, not just how I date, but how I interact with people, and so I don't know if that answers your question or not. This is
1: fascinating. Dating
0: in person, <laughs> I
1: have so many questions. So I've had a couple experiences recently where I've like I can think of just like last week I was on the subway mm-hmm. and waiting a long time for the L train to come, and there was this this person who I was just like, oh, he's dressed really cute, he looks really sweet. He was yeah. reading on a Kindle, but reading, and I very easily. We kept, you know, kind of making eye contact, kind of like being frustrated about the train together. And I very easily could have been like, hey, what are you reading? Mm -hmm. And I've had other moments of that, you know, in coffee shops and all of these places. But I, I, this kind of goes back to being a projector and talking about that concept Mm. of wait for the invitation. Mm. And I would love your thoughts on this because as you were speaking, I'm like, okay, all right, I could do that. Sounds terrifying, but I could do that. Might be even kind of fun you'd have to be really confident. You'd have to be having a good day. You'd have to feel okay about your outfit that day. You'd have to like, you know, but I could do it. But then I was thinking I would prefer if someone would slip me a note or someone would come up to me. But I think this is a really interesting conversation for, at the same time, if that happened and it was someone I was not into, would that feel violating? Would that feel like living in this me too era? Like, has that happened? Because that's happened to me like in uncomfortable situations before, not a ton, not really that much at all, but usually it's been like an unwelcome sort of catcall situation. So that's my question for you. Like, Do you think women in our situation need to do this with men that we think are you know, in heterosexual relationships because of the era that we're in, it's more likely that they're not going to be doing it to us. Does that make sense? It totally does. And so there's a couple
0: of different answers mm-hmm. to that question or that point. I want to be mindful of the word do we need to be anything my radar goes right, up right, anytime, right. you know, and I just want to so much of my workers around you know, feeling into what we crave and permission giving. But when it comes to, to dating in person and introducing myself and creating those opportunities, I was very much in a place. Cause you talked about, you have to have, you have to be confident. You have to have an outfit. You like I had reached a place in my life where I was very grounded and comfortable in who I was. I like myself a lot. (laughs) That's so great. Um, It took, I didn't like myself for a Mm -hmm. long time. And that was work that had nothing to do, personal work that had nothing to do with dating. So I will say, yes, I almost think of it. I had reached a point where short of, I mean, look, if someone had said something horrible to me, of course that would have impacted me. But I definitely had occurrences where someone wouldn't hear me and it was a little embarrassing, but uh, whatever, on with my day.
1: Did you have occurrences where they were like, I'm married or I'm in a relationship or? No, I did have an occurrence where
0: I didn't see somebody's wedding ring. And then they did meet me the next day. And I (gasps) was like, what are we? And he said, well, I thought, and I, and I just walked out. So no, it's not a total, you know, but I actually think that's a great, you know, around the me too conversation. When I started doing that, the first guy that I did it with, he was very candid. He said, I wanted to. Well, the first guy that I introduced to myself, a total stranger, he said, "I have wanted to do that, but I don't want to bother women. Yeah, I feel that they're bothered all the time, and I, I have aside, and I think I put this in the article. I have been the one to lead the conversation in every scenario, and not in a, hey, you know, like really, and we should talk about feminine masculine energy too, because that's just coming up for me." I was the one to lead the conversation. The one time somebody did to me, he was married and not honest about that. Mm. So I don't think it's a, it's not black or white at all. I, it is a, it's a very interesting time to crave chivalry, which I definitely do and want mm-hmm. in a mate, but Same. to also, which is to me, chivalry is, you know, better adjectives would be, or, uh, I don't know. I'm like, what's language, or what, what piece of speech are we talking about here, or grammar? But you know, generosity, kindness, that you want from an individual to crave that, but then also in this time where, mm-hmm. I mean, part of the reason I think I was so successful at introducing myself and having conversations was because nobody's doing it anymore. I mean, this was a huge talk about my, we're sitting at my desk here. I have this article, this 40 page article from the Atlantic on the sex recession. And there's a huge piece in there around just how statistically no one goes up to one another anymore. And so, yes, it does in this era, it does shift. It is a, I I always say it's a different time to be dating. Yeah. And I think that's one of the elements.
1: What are some other patterns you're seeing in your clients and people that, you're working with and people who come to your talks?
0: Mm. So I primarily work with career-driven, very, I say that very uh, successful, career-driven, focused, caring women who, I mean, my clients are so impressive to me, more in the sense of just everything that they've done and that, that, that they've created. But one of the things that really led me to this work was to go back to what I was saying earlier, you have all these, there was always the, People are always saying I have all these wonderful female friends and they and they they want to partner from a place of what do I want to create with my life not mm-hmm. I need some man to complete me and icing so, on the cake. Yeah, yeah. Icing on the cake and then also just huh, a la- a large and this is a whole other conversation a large part of I think a partnership specifically around creation what is the life that you're building and creating together and how does that better support, leverage each of you to become the, the person who you want to be mm-hmm. and whether that lasts for 10 years or two years or 40 years. So in terms of the patterns, the the pattern that I was seeing specifically around that was, and this includes myself in that too, these women tend to be, yes, very self-motivated, extremely hardworking, also extremely hard on themselves. Nothing is ever good enough there are also often what i call the fixer or the caretaker growing up so there's actually a term actually a term for this it's called parentifying when you as a child take care of the parents before you you're very attuned to the parents needs and emotional states and you put those needs before your own often subconsciously and by no means you know necessarily the fault of the parent either we could, that could go hand in hand with, with divorce or not even divorce, just the dynamic of a relationship that Mm -hmm. was modeled to you growing up. Um, so yeah, they're often the fixer in that regard. They're most people, they're often extremely, they're happy and they're fulfilled. They're, they too are curious about this area that feels not like an area of lack because they need something to complete them, but because it feels like a part of them that is not being fed.
1: Mm -hmm. but what are the patterns that they are experiencing dating Mm. that you feel like you're constantly hearing about?
0: Yeah. These women
1: sound awesome by the way.
0: (laughs) Well, the bigger pattern is that we live in a time where we want everything to be um, predictable, bundled up, we want we think we've been fed and this a lot of this comes with the i mean actually the dating apps are a great example where we think that we can or we think we can to-do list our way through this area of our life so we have this app that sits amongst our online banking portal Mm -hmm. and our mind body app where we schedule our classes and you know some other calendar and so subconsciously it's like oh okay you know uh, check that that deposit went through, uh, boyfriend sk- schedule my, right. Yeah. You know, so then it's like swipe, swipe, swipe. set up some date, eventually like spit out husband, Yeah, you know, I mean, truly like it's positioned in that way. And it's even marketed in that way where it's like, Oh, you don't have the time to go out. And, and we, you know, yes, we are so busy. And, and I think there's a, it's, it's not for a lack of time, but they are fed to us in that way of, here's this thing that where you can just check a few boxes and click a few things. And you're already in this pool of people that have all supposedly, you know, and that's another thing we can get into. They're all here for the same reason. So we're, it's, we're efforting our way through it. We're trying to strong arm our ways. If I can just go on enough dates, if I can just, and so the pattern then becomes why, why then does this whole thing make me feel so terrible and miserable? And it's because, I mean, dating is, dating is an emotionally complicated endeavor. We don't, I mean, really, if we pull back from this, the, you know, we were asked, we're talking about the patterns themselves, but what I saw was that the conversation was either here's how to get the guy and here are the steps to break that down, or you really have to just love yourself totally first and then your entire life will fall into place. And neither of those really, resonated with me and I saw an opportunity for a conversation that was more a conscious conversation around what had happened to us culturally around our inability to communicate with one another and to be vulnerable with one another, mm-hmm. which is a huge requirement in those. I mean, it's the bedrock of any relationship, but it's part of, of dating and we're so conditioned to not operate in that way. and And the apps, along with being something that brings ease in terms of giving us access to a pool of people through our phone, have also kind of falsely allowed us to skip over the step of that. You know, when you are in a coffee shop and you're going, you know, you're putting yourself out there and saying, Have you had the chocolate chip cookie mm-hmm. and how is it or something of that nature? It's allowed us to overstep that. But you, you can't, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a false overstepping. It almost makes me think of a crash diet or you're going to, you know, in three days lose 10 pounds for a wedding and then it's just water weight and everything comes back. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's false in that yeah, sense. Yeah. It's
1: fleeting. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you did bring up the conversation of self-love and mm. how you have to like you at the beginning you were saying you, Feel confident going up to people because you like yourself. And I think yeah. I think that is really important. But I would love your take on, well, first of all, what did you do to get to that point? You said it was a long schlep. Yeah. And even when you said that, I think the first part
0: of that was wasn't I didn't feel so actively, oh, I just love myself so much. I don't care what the outcome is. I was detached
1: mostly, not perfectly.
0: I was detached from the other person's reaction.
1: You ha- it would seem like you have to have some confidence and you have to yes. have some self-assurance that no matter what, you're not like looking for the dopamine from this interaction. You're going to be okay no matter what.
0: I was and still am very, and this goes back to my, I'm very driven by and, and passionate about creating relationships however long they last and with people that it's enriching, it's fulfilling. It's something that, I mean, actually to go back to the nurturer uh, comment, I both adore being cared for and feel at home giving that to another. I mean, it's why I also feel phys- very physically the craving of, of eventually being a mom one day, you know? So we're talking about this moment where I have the comms to go up to somebody, but it's driven by the, li- it's ultimately driven by the life that I want to create for myself. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was the first seed, so to speak it's hard to not say that and have it sound not from a place of desperation. Like I have sell, I'm single right now and it's very much a season of, it's a season of my life where I very much see why being single feeds me and serves me right now. But yes, there is that desire to build and create with another that really is the larger motivation around dating and seeking partnership. But then when it comes to meeting people in person, in that moment, having the motivation and the comfort, or comfort isn't the right word, but the um, perhaps a little fearlessness, and it won't totally break me, is because that feels more real to me than uh, using an app. Mm-hmm. There's actually, I would rather almost have a silly moment where someone's, you know, anyone's going to be flattered, honestly, mm-hmm. or whatever shakes out, just some silly human Awkward. You'll have a good story after. I mean, it's like we're, you know, people were meant to speak and connect and touch people. And there's a sadness to me in, again, I've met wonderful people through the apps too. It's more through the frame of mind of which I've approached them that have made me more resilient around them too. But it was a curiosity to connect that fed that. And rather than a, I must meet this person mm-hmm. if I don't meet them, and I have this vision of us. I mean, yes, of course, I want children. Do I envision the type of life that I have you know yes, yeah. how'll where we'll travel? what we'll do together? Yes, did I do that with previous partners? The things that have now ended? Did we do that? Yes, was it wonderful? Yeah, you know, so I think I do that because <laughs> I believe in in well, human connection.
1: I also think too, the pain of I'm thinking about this now. The pain of not going up to someone and wishing you had mm-hmm. and kind of rejecting like what could have been to the pain of trying and having an awkward moment, you have to measure like which one are you more afraid of? And then there's that third option of like, you know, you end up dating the person. So you have to just in that moment, do you feel like it's it's kind of like, do you feel like having this interaction... In when you're in a Lyft or an Uber, do you feel like talking, or do you feel like looking at your phone? Do you feel right. like tapping into the world, or tapping out right. of the world? And you know, as you were
0: saying that, it made me think too, because I don't have—I work with clients in all different capacities, and I don't have them all dating in person. Often, the work doesn't even—you know—we don't even start necessarily with the dating itself. I would say to somebody who, if they're hearing this and they're thinking, "I absolutely cannot." do that. That sounds, (laughs) you know, this is the scariest thing in the world. Don't force yourself. Instead, get really curious, journal, whatever it is around, okay, wait, why does that feel so scary for me? Mm -hmm. And keep, it's like that that pattern of questioning where you keep going, and why, Mm -hmm. and why, and why? What's underneath that? And I spent a long time looking at what's underneath that. And so, yes, do I, yes, do I like myself? I mean, look, I like myself, I'm sure I'll, that will grow <laughs> and it will wax and wane. But a lot of that has to do with getting over body image issues, mm-hmm. not being so concerned. I mean, you know, endless people pleasing, and putting that habit to rest in many ways, learning how to set boundaries. All these things that when I say it has nothing to do with dating, it does, but it arms me where if I go up and have a conversation with a stranger and it doesn't, you know, I wanted to get a drink with them and they didn't respond in that way it's like, okay, yeah. you know, we're just people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think what's most helpful for me from this conversation is just knowing that like, that's a thing people do. People go up to people and do that. I've had many conversations with newly single friends Mm -hmm. recently about someone said to me like, Oh, you just can't meet someone in a restaurant. Everyone's on the apps that are ever like, there's so like, there's a lot of on the app. You can't do this. You can't. So knowing like, P- Clara's done this It's worked It's fine You know Just like That's an option It might not be weird To do that People do it I think that That is Expansive to me In a way I am
0: Anytime someone says Never or can't Or it just has to be This yeah. way I'm like Really? Does yeah. it really? Because And if that Especially if that doesn't feel good What else What else is What else is there?
1: Yeah Yeah I I think just to know that that's that's a possibility is is useful. I want to go back to speaking of the self-love and speaking of liking yourself the on the other side of that my question with that not just how you got there but what is your perspective on like for me I'll use myself as an example I don't feel like I like myself mm-hmm. all the way and there are moments where i do but it's something i really struggle with especially right now so would you say in terms of dating obviously i'm never going to get to a point where i'm just like fully fully confident you know we've like we've talked about this and i'm like over the top confident that might not be ever a reality but when i'm artic- i'm kind of going around in circles or trying to articulate this but do you have to be at a certain level of basic self-love or okay with yourself to be with another person? It's that question of, mm. it's that age-old question of like, do you have to be healed to be with someone or like, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, to I ask? totally understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. And I think that this is a larger part
0: about, we were having this conversation last night where, so the short answer to that is No you can think about actually a business is a great example where we think oh well the website has to be perfect or this has to be or that has to be perfect but they say about to be per- a baby, i guess it's right. no good time to- there's exactly so are we ever totally whole healed and all that jazz no it's a lifelong journey it also is a conversation that can get really <laughs> we can be really exhausted by that mm-hmm. so i'm a blame believer in everyone is your teacher, so I can look back and think about different dating experiences, different mini relationships, different full-blown relationships, and in the relationship, I had deep moments of, oh my god, what the fuck is wrong with me? Who am I? I what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? What's wrong? Just you know, all the things. I'm not floating around a constant world of, um, you know, it's not even actually liking myself. It's it's a surrender, surrendering to. It's a level of self-acceptance. Yeah, it's like, this is what I've got to work with this time around. Right, this is exactly, actually, that's a great way of looking at it because I find that the, this is who I am is really charged with a really negative defensive energy where it's like, this is what I knew what to bring. I mean, in yeah, this like, last these are relationship- the raw materials. Like, yeah. I got
1: this body, this is my hair color, this is like, this is, this well, is, hair color is a bad. <laughs> because you can change that easily, but, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I can think back on this ra- last relationship that I just had where- It's interesting now, I hadn't thought about it in this way, but how we met from a sort of dating perspective was this really kind of beautiful dance in terms of easing into one another. And we both kind of nudged it along and having a lot of patience there. And then when it ended, knowing that how we both no longer served one another, but also where I needed to grow. So was I fully whole? healed formed no will I be for the you know it's like imagine sort of there you ratchet up you ratchet up and then I'm sure you fall back down 10 levels and I so when people just want to date to have a relationship are they willing to surrender to that gut-wrenching work (laughs) of self you know it's really hard
1: yeah Yeah. wow I want to go back to talking about nostalgia and breakups today's episode is made possible by ned ned is a company that i love i got to talk to the founders recently and they're these are really lovely, kind people. Ned makes CBD products that are organic and whole and everything is slow crafted in small batches. They know their farmer who's this lovely, lovely guy who plays music for the plants and they make these full spectrum hemp products that are energetically infused with love and gratitude and positive vibes and I just really, really love this company. CBD's been really helpful to me and specifically Ned's products. I love them so much. They say that they make them with gentle, slow extraction. So they extract from the hemp flowers, otherwise known as the buds, and that makes their product different from anything else on the market. So, what is CBD? CBD is not going to make you high. It can't. It just doesn't do that. It's the part that is non psychoactive. It's not the same thing that you think of when you think of. You know traditionally smoking weed CBD is like I said non-psychoactive but what it does help with is being a sleep aid it's been used to treat insomnia it can be anti-inflammatory it can be a natural pain reliever it's been used to help with anxiety and PTSD and to treat depression it's rich in antioxidants anyway it has a lot of benefits that different people use it for I'll tell you what I use it for I use it when I'm going out in a Social situation or about to record a podcast, it just kind of smooths the edges and it just kind of makes me feel more in my body. I'll take it in the evening before bed sometimes. I'll put it a few drops in my smoothie or I'll just put it under my tongue. I really love it and I think you guys should try it. And if you want to get 15% off, well, do whatever you want, but you know, if you want to try it, try it is what I mean. And if you want to get 15% off, definitely use the code Let It Out at checkout. That's Let It Out for 15% off. And you also get free shipping so you just go to www.hello ned.com slash let it out and use the code let it out in the you know checkout and you'll get 15% off hey guys so this is my interview with darren the founder of Barukis, and genuinely i love these nuts and how they taste and the sustainability practices that the company has And I really liked this guy. (laughs) He was really nice. And at the end, he shares something really vulnerable about his marriage ending, which was really lovely. So here's that conversation now. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid?
2: (laughs) I grew up in Southern Minnesota in a small town.
1: Oh, you're Midwestern like me. No wonder I like you so much. (laughs) Where are you from? I'm from Michigan.
2: Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, small town. You know, my dad was an agricultural professor at the University of Minnesota. Cousins, relatives were farmers and ranchers. and My grandmother came over on a covered wagon through Minnesota and into the Dakotas. Very simple, simple life. You know, I had some health challenges as a kid. I was premature. So my first imprinting was very, this is a scary, scary life in the sense I feel vulnerable having a body. And that was kind of my first, you know, being three pounds, three and a half pounds as a kid, I kind of set my trajectory. And so when I found things like food and nutrition and working out and ways that I could actually control things, that's where things started flourishing, where, you know, I played sports and I got stronger and started migrating towards like just taking care of myself because I got such powerful results from it. And then playing college football, I got hurt and then I switched everything and I luckily I changed to physiology, kinesiology, nutrition in college and that's really what set my eternal deep curiosity and fascination of this miracle that we have and then it evolved into nutritional research and investigation and and then as a kind of a Midwestern kid The traveling just became. Well, I need to meet the people that are coming up with these exotic foods, right? So it wasn't it wasn't an exotic desire. It was just I need to meet these people and see how they're growing these and how they're preparing these botanicals, and that's really the start of my career. And then I slowly over the years developed a lot of relationships around the world and, and a lot of botanicals that no one's heard heard of before so that's in a nutshell how it all kind of started
1: and then baruka's edible nutshell (laughs) do you want to just start in on how you founded the company and how you started doing the the work that you're doing now
2: yeah so the nuts (laughs) got my attention by the taste as well but before that what first got my attention is the nutritionals. So I hadn't tasted them yet. And Rodrigo, who's Brazilian, but US educated now living here saw that I was traveling in Brazil. I was looking, I was in the Amazon on the other side, looking for other fruits. And he had saw through social media and he reached out several years ago. And he told me about this amazing nut out of the Sahadu or the Savannah of Brazil. It always piques my interest when I can learn something new because we're on an abundant planet where we can't know it all, which is one of the reasons I love my field. And so I started. He sent him. He sent me a bunch of research that wasn't in Portuguese, and I started reading. And I was like, "Whoa, what is this? This is a nut. This is technically a seed." And the nutritionals were just astonishing, and so. That got my attention. And then when he sent me samples, I immediately, because as a formulator and kind of someone searching out botanicals, you often don't find a delicious food that has all the nutritional qualities of micronutrients and fiber and high antioxidants and lower in calories and all of these wonderful things Baruchas has, but that it tastes good and that it's so good that the immediate thing for me was, wow, this isn't going to be a barrier to entry in terms of an American normal palate that is used to something like an almond or something like a peanut. And so once I looked at the research tasted them I was very intrigued but then the biggest question after that is can it actually if it's never been here before if it's never been really outside of the country then obviously there's some there's some reasons for that and you're dealing with you're dealing with a landmass that's the size of three states of Texas or like a third of the whole United States. It's huge, right? It's a massive, massive area that's kind of the cousin or the Southern aspect of Brazil. So obviously my questions as kind of someone who runs around the world, looking at these things, I was like, okay, well, there's definitely going to be some challenges of a wild food being collected and fairly worked with the indigenous people. And then of course, processing, you're definitely going to have to look at that. So that's the next thing I did was jump on a plane with Rodrigo and we went to the Savannah and then you quickly see that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. That was the start of it. How did you
1: connect with Rodrigo and what were you doing before that?
2: Yeah, so Rodrigo saw because I was I was you know as they coined in a couple articles like a superfood hunter. So I was j- I'm just a fascinated person with nutritionals, and so over the course of fifteen sixteen years, I've been running around the world looking at botanicals and foods and, and nutraceuticals and formulating products. And so I was in Brazil on the other side, so like I was on the eastern side of Brazil and Belém in the Amazon, looking at palm fruits and visiting indigenous people. And he saw on social media, that's kind of like the, the, the best thing ever that happened on social media. Yeah. Um, and then he did some research on me and he was like, wow, if anyone's going to know if this is even possible, it's probably this guy. And so he reached out on a whim and I just happened to get the message and then we just had a conversation and that's, that's kind of how it started. And and it's one of those rare finds because for me, you always have a challenge with any botanical or herb or supplement or food in a foreign country. You're always going to have. And then when he reached out, I was very interested in the food side of things because I was always dealing in, in supplements. And so... Having a food an indigenous food that hasn't been utilized correctly, and then when you quickly realize that it's intimately connected to the environment, that the Baruzeta tree, where the, this nut comes from, is a nitrogen-fixing tree. It's a very special tree in the Sahadu. So it's a deep tap root, so it, it hooks into the aquifer below two-thirds of the tree is underground because you're in the sahadu. It's dry at least three-quarters of the year. There's not a drop of water. So the Barozeta tree goes deep into the aquifer and gets its water, but it also then nitrogen fixes the soil. So it, it not only does that from the air and converts it with the microbiological system in the ground, it also helps and supports the other microflora and all of the plants around it. So it's kind of a grandfather of the Sahadu area and the savanna, And the Sahadu itself is, is being destroyed faster than any landmass on the planet that we know of. So because of unsustainable wow. factory farming, corn, soybeans for cattle grazing, And the pushing of that by the government and meat production, they're just stripping this very valuable land, which is creating a very challenging ecosystem for not only the Sahara itself, but also the Amazon, because they need each other.
1: Yeah. So I know that you guys are so sustainable in your practices. Can you talk a little bit about that? And when this became your business, that that was so important to you and how you brought that into the company?
2: Yeah. Thank you. You know, it's like when you've traveled so much and you've seen the wrong side of things for so long and how little people understand the transparency of where their food and supplements comes from. For me, it's always been relationship driven relationship with the indigenous people. They have to be happy. And then it has to leave the planet better than it was before. So how it started to happen was you're seeing, you're seeing the sadness of the Sahadu, you know, traveling thousands and thousands of kilometers throughout the area. You're seeing in your face, the destruction. And then you realize, wow, if we create a value for a customer and that customer loves this delicious nut and gets the value of the nutrients, we can create a conscious consumer, consumerism loop. Whereas if if the customers continue to drive the need, the supply, then we can actually continue the supply while making a fair agreements with the indigenous people, giving them higher wages than they had in the past, announcing that so that all indigenous people know what the price is. So no one, no middlemen can come in and and undercut them because we're very transparent. We've met with the elders, we've met with the chiefs, we've met with the botanists, we've met with the NGOs, we met with the universities, we immersed ourselves in understanding the culture so that we could come in and respect that and also enhance it. So enhancing that, then we were able to create this wild collection, well, this collection of wild food, because this is a wild food. You're not monocropping, you're not using agrochemicals, you're not using fertilizers. This is a wild food and very rare in this day and age that you can actually scale up a wild food.
1: Yeah. So
2: the other great thing is we, through the investment, the investment came from with Baruchas through a charitable trust. And that charitable trust is by the customer then buying this product, creating the engine we then move into the next phase of tree planting of the Bado Zeta tree. So this tree, this grandfather we've met with the nurseries and the 95% germination rates. We understand how to grow them and we give them back for free to the indigenous people so that they can start. Yes. so so, so They can start replanting on their own land. And then in, Ten or fifteen years when those plants mature, we then will guarantee that we'll buy everything again. So that's a really important thing because many people have been screwed around by other people wanting to do this and just not having the clarity and the security of a a real business or enough money. And so when we go to these people, we announce that you collect anything, we'll buy everything you have for this fair price. So, so you good. do the work, we'll pay you. So it checked every box, you know, it checked the environmental yeah. box, it checked the helping the indigenous people, it checked the nutritional profile, and then it checked the, the taste uh, yeah. of, of the customers. So,
1: so my question for you then is, you know, I feel like you guys might have a marketing challenge of people just not until you try this nut. I mean, <laughs> I was open to trying it, but I really had no idea and then I loved it. I also want you to talk about the other fruit that's in your trail mix that you guys have and the mm-hmm. taste of that. But could you describe the taste of it and then talk about how, you know, what is your marketing challenge then to get this to people in the US and around the world who haven't tried this? You know, it's not an almond, it's not a cashew, it tastes better, but how do you communicate <laughs> that without people trying it?
2: That's a great, great question. When you're sitting on the most nutrient dense, nut in the world, and, and like you said, taste better you still have to get it to people
1: yeah so, and talk a little bit about that nutrients that it's so it's we mentioned that it tastes great but it also has more protein right than any other yeah milk?
2: yeah and so far our testing shows that it has all the essential amino acids and super high protein so it matches the highest pro- like peanuts are pretty high in protein so it matches that antioxidants it pretty much blows every nut away it's about on the orac scale it's like 370% more than say an almond and that really points to the severity of the of the savanna right so when something's yeah. under stress it develops micronutrient profiles that are strong so that the plant can continue to thrive in those environments and then you look at the micronutrients you know you've got calcium magnesium phosphorus iron uh, you've got some of the essential elements and electrolytes that and minerals that most people are low in and these have much of that and then you have kind of this ridiculous amount of fiber which we all know at this point that that we are three times lower in the fiber consumption than than our indigenous ancestors had because of our processing of food so two to three times more fiber than any other nut.
1: And they're so, more easy to digest. And then, right? and
2: then on top of it, it's lower in calories. So the calories that you're consuming has more nutrients available for every bite that you're taking. And then, I mean, describing the taste is like, man, I've had people say it's like chocolate and it's like, there's this chocolatey flavor. Yeah. With a, with a peanut, with an almond, but better. And then there's this crunch that's kind of surprisingly satisfying. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it really is. It's, it's crazy in that way, right? And
1: I think you said that they're easier to digest than other nuts, too, right? Because it's a seed,
2: ultimately. Exactly. And here's the thing. So we, we got all this anecdotal information, which is no joke from the scientific literature. We interviewed some of the top, master's theses and and PhDs in Brazil talking about the research behind it but we also did all our own nutritional testing so everything that we are putting out there and on the label and talking about those are from our independent lab tested stuff and then you know we did anti-nutrient testing and the lectins and oxalates and everything is way low in all of those anti-nutrients and then then you look at things like, okay, well, how did they get there? And this is where it's great when you travel and you get to meet because you get to find things that you can't find on a Google search. So like yeah. indigenous, the indigenous people knew that first you can't pick it soon. You can't pick it early. It has to fall from the tree because that's when the seed is actually complete. And so there's no kind of stripping the tree. It's, it falls and it's ready to be picked up but the indigenous people knew the ancient indigenous people knew that you couldn't just eat the nut they knew that by smelling it wasn't available it wasn't ripe it wasn't usable in that sense except for the fruit on the outside which i'll talk to you more about and so what they used to do is you used to take this whole casing of this very hard shell with the one nut inside you have to you have to crack this thing open to get one nut. So they used to throw it on kind of the fire at the end of the day, so at the embers of a fire. And they'd wake up the next day and it was easier to crack open and the nut was roasted inside. And so by that quote unquote roasting, that would unlock the nutrients and make them biologically available for our human consumption. And then wow. and turn off the anti-nutrients or convert them. So, you know, again, following nature and following the yeah. indigenous, we are not trying to do something different in that sense. The only difference is that we spend a lot of time, money and resources making sure that we have the quality assurance standards that we have in place in this area are... Of the highest standards in in the U.S. with yeah. uh, HACCP certifications and good manufacturing practices and independent audits, and that's where that's where really Baruch is as a brand. We hold that with reverence and yeah. honor because that's one of the reasons why you're you're never really going to see Baruchas in another form other than Baruchas, because unless a company comes in and understands a culture like we do and and spends millions of dollars developing that, um, that's really what kept it from coming to the States is really the infrastructure that was necessary for it to be a high quality product.
1: Yeah. So going back to my other question, the the (laughs) marketing struggle seems to be to me that you have this Beautiful story. That's a really long story, which is maybe why marketing on podcasts makes sense for you because it's hard to say this in a thirty-second soundbite or <laughs> you know on social media. Was that your impetus to marketing? And I know Justin on your team works with that, but you know, communicating this quickly is is difficult.
2: Yeah, and it's it's kind of a good challenge. We have a lot yeah. of good stuff to say about it, but you know, like our tagline, "Good for you, good for the planet." If you really look at that it speaks to absolutely something that are embedded in the pillars yeah. of how we set up the company and the tree itself. So we're, we're really mimicking the tree. The tree is such a revered sacred tree in the, in the Sahadu and it's gifting to its constituents, its yeah. other plants around it. We're doing the same thing. We, yeah. we are honor we're honoring the pillar of the strength of the tree by doing that in the same business sense that we are coming in, gifting the people around us, gifting the indigenous people, supporting the environment, giving back to the environment, and ultimately gifting people by the nutrient dynamo that it is. So it's really that, and it's kind of the bowing our heads to what that is and needing to do it in that way. But you're right from a marketing perspective, we need to tell the story and we need to get it into people's hands and ultimately into their mouth. And one thing that's really good for us is when we get to be in front of people, when we go to the expos, when we give them to, to children at certain events, children will, to, will navigate themselves right to Baruchas over like a candy bar. We've seen it several times. It's crazy. And that's the thing. You can't kind of bullshit a kid, right? Yeah. It's either it's either good or it's not good. They don't Yeah, care. kids
1: and dogs, no.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and my dog loves Baruchus as well. So oh my gosh. yeah, it's crazy. I have a German shepherd that just, you know, once he understood that it crunches, he was like, oh, okay, I'm good. So, yeah. <laughs> so the marketing is is something that, The more exposure we get and the more we can get it into the hands of people and into the mouths, the better.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm excited for every listener to try them. So let's, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. So just to get to know you beyond the brand a little bit. So just say the kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week other than a Baruca's nut?
2: Oh my God. I had a smoothie bowl of acai blueberries strawberries bananas oh, coconut yogurt and then of course i did put barucas on top but that's what i had i had all of that other stuff and uh, they're
1: so good on top of bowls like that oh, what's the oh other fruit that in the trail mix that you guys have
2: oh god this was so here's the story so the, there's a fruit layer on the outside Um, Mm -hmm. and it's a, just a fairly thin layer. So let's say a whole buruka fruit is the whole thing with the shell, with the fruit, with the seed inside is 25 grams. There's Mm -hmm. one gram of a nut and then maybe about 10 grams of fruit. So one day in the Sahadu, I saw one fruit, the whole thing that was four or five years old. I saw one that we just picked and I looked at it and there was no difference upon looking at it. I shaved both of them and I ate the fruit on the outside and I, could, I couldn't even tell the difference. And I'm like, what is going on? That is fruit and it's not breaking down. So of course, I said, well, it's got to have high antioxidant value. It's got to have high minerals. So in the car, on the bumpy car ride home, I started taking a pocket knife and shaving that off. And then, when I got to the States and went and had it tested, so this thing, so we dehydrate that and make a chip out of it. And it's full of antioxidants, huge, full of even more fiber and micronutrients. And we're even looking at some high prebiotic activity, so good microflora activity. Mm. So, and then when you combine them together, you just get this incredible, delicious, natural alchemy of this slightly sweet and crunchy with with the nut itself. And it was just a home run. Plus we're we're less and less waste, right?
1: Yeah. And it tastes like cereal, honestly. Like I like putting (laughs) that with like a little bit of almond milk or macadamia nut milk. And like you were saying on the top of a smoothie pool, it's like fantastic. It's amazing. Such a good trail mix together. Okay. What is your favorite place that you've ever traveled to?
2: Oh man. That's a tough one. I mean, they're so unique. I mean, certainly Brazil, certainly some of the areas and this place called Alto Paradiso where we have one of our facilities is is a geo-miracle where most of the crystals in the world come from. So it's a really intense, beautiful place. And I would also say outside of Brazil, very, very unique place and culture is Bhutan in the Himalayas, where I got to look at wild mushrooms and things. That is, uh, you know, one of the last Shangri-Las and a unique place on the planet, for sure.
1: What's your favorite part of your life right now? What are you most excited about?
2: Well, I'm definitely very excited about the Baruka's journey, getting it out in the world. It's one of my most favorite adventures right now. And then a quick second to that is rebuilding my house and getting into the environmental initiatives that I've been playing around with. Not not yeah. a lot of people know this about me, that I've I'm deeply involved in in certain technologies that hopefully we can announce soon that are waste to fuel type things and clean energy technologies that I'm deeply involved in and in helping clean energy production on the planet. So yeah. between the Barucas journey and that, I'm I'm, I'm pretty engaged in a big way.
1: Yeah. And we can, can we tell people you're rebuilding your house because you lost it in the the Malibu fires? Is that the silver lining you were mentioning?
2: Absolutely. It's, it's not only, you know, everything is kind of coming out of the necessity. So out of this, out of the necessity of losing everything, I'm on a really incredible piece of property surrounded by the national park and 50 acres and and when everything was wiped out, it was a clean slate to rebuild in an eco-sustainable way and to demonstrate certain technologies on there that I'm very engaged with and excited about. It's just, you know, the the mundane permitting and stuff like that and people not understanding. All of the technology is a little challenging, but that's a massive shift in my life that went from an individual need to hopefully a global kind of birth. So other people can benefit from not only disaster, but of generation kind of moving forward beyond sustainability into generating food, water, shelter, power, mm-hmm. and giving us back our freedoms and, and destroying the monopolies that are really stripping our freedoms away so these these are really the transmutation of the pain and destruction that i'm in the process of doing and i'm i'm more committed to health for individuals and health as a planet than ever so those are the next chapters for sure
1: when it comes to being an entrepreneur and someone who's traveling and doing all these things what do you do when you're not working what are your ways to wind down at the end of a day
2: well the favorite is being on my land it's a very special piece of property being outside and, and being with my dog my dog's a very incredible sweet 90 pound german shepherd that he has me laughing every day so we'll go on hikes and explore and and all of that so hanging out in that way is, is just being, brings the biggest smile to me.
1: I love that. I'm sitting by my friend's dog right now while we're recording. And I, I get that. It's definitely is relaxing to be around an animal that you love. So we oh, end with this question that I think is kind of hard, but let's see if you have an answer off the top of your head for it. So this podcast is about telling what we call soft stories. So these are the vulnerable, tender, stories that I believe connect us and bind us and make us feel less alone. So have you had someone tell you a soft story or something that felt like they were sharing with you that was something tender that connected you with them that was helpful to you that you can remember?
2: Yeah. I mean, I can tell you very intimately and vulnerably last night. In fact, my ex-wife, who I divorced a year ago, came over to the property. I just moved back in the property a few days ago and she came over just before my power and everything went out and she came back she used to live there as well and she kind of confronted me and she said hey i feel this wall that you have with me i'm not here to take anything from you i'm not here to do anything other than i i love you as a person and you're one of the closest people in my life even though our chapters have changed and she nailed me she she, I was it was true I had walls I had walls up and and in that moment just completely no bullshit straight to the heart I owned it I acknowledged it I told her you're right and there's no reason to have the walls up so and I felt a million percent better not only in that moment but also this morning so the honesty I think we have with relationships and people and this is is something that's so easily avoided because it often is uncomfortable to acknowledge what we're doing or what we're not doing and it's so deep so having people who are willing to go to those places I'm forever grateful for her and for other people in my life that can not only keep me in integrity with my highest self, but also that you can be there and, and be there for the person in any capacity. So, wow. so that's my, that's my answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for letting out a soft story. Yeah. That's, I mean, relationships, man, and, and breakups. I, I had a breakup this year that wasn't a divorce, but kind of felt like it in a lot of ways and stuff's really hard and complicated and, there's so many feelings there and anyway thanks for sharing that and I'm really happy you had that conversation last night
2: yeah me too me too
1: well it was so nice getting to know you and I'm really really happy to be working with you I love your products but now I like actually love the company because I'm really really glad we had this conversation I got to know you and everyone else I've worked with on your team has been lovely and I'm a super nut fan
2: (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah, well, I'm, cool. I'm a super, I'm a super nut, and love the super nuts. But I am, I, I just want to say, I it didn't even feel like a podcast. It felt like just a great, intimate talk, and I appreciate that. And, and thank you for you and um, what you're doing as well.
1: Thank you so much. We'll end with how we always end, which is letting out a deep breath. So, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so inhale. And let it out. <sighs> Always feels a little bit better. All right, have a great day. Thanks for listening until the end. You've made it to the likes and learns segment of the show where I share with you something I've been liking this month and something that I've been learning. And by this month, I mean this week because this episode comes out weekly. So, I'm going to give you two musical artists that I've been really liking, and that's because I got to talk to them for the podcast. So you'll be hearing episodes with Yolklore. His real name is Adrian, who's lovely, and I had a great conversation with him, and I love his music. His song, Good Pain, it's, it's great. I think you guys should listen to it. And also, I got to talk to Andrew Bird, you guys. Probably most of you already listened to Andrew Bird, but if you don't, His new album, My Greatest Work Yet, is wonderful. He was also on the Sam Jones podcast this week. And I think you guys would like that episode too. That podcast is called Off Camera. Okay, what I've been learning this week is that nothing is certain. Things that you think are forever and going to make you feel safe. And I'm not just talking about relationships. I'm really not. You don't know. They're not always going to be there. So we really have to feel okay with ourselves as ourselves. And I don't exactly know how to do that, but I'm trying and I'm learning that. In the meantime, I'm going to give you a quote that I like. It's from Rumi, and I think it speaks to this episode. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all of the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Take that in. I hope it's helpful to you. Thank you so much for listening And being my friend, I am so grateful for you guys. I will talk to you next week with the rest of this interview with Clara, where we get into a lot more, including nostalgia and learning to be okay with how you are. It's giving yourself the permission to
0: have those moments, but not get so locked in them that... You're not giving yourself permission to move beyond it.
1: I'll talk to you guys then.
0: Bye.